Well, in this season, when we're being reminded of so many uh, prophecies of the coming of our Lord, we're going to find a very different kind of prophecy than most people think about, uh, called, as I warned you, typology. And to begin our study, I'd like to read to you from Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives his uh, defense of his faith in Christ and what he is teaching and uh, doing so by quite a long recounting of the history of Israel. But you notice, recounted in a very particular way. I didn't understand this for quite some time as a new Christian until uh, learning something about typology, and I then understood why all these particular people come up and how it is that all of these, in their various ways, testify to the assembly of Jesus. Well, let's read just from verse 9 to verse 14. Then we'll skip to the end and pick up verses 51 and 52, and I hope to make this more plain as we go along. But uh, picking up in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, Stephen speaking to the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And the patriarchs, being, uh, excuse me, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And delivered him out of all of his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Well, skipping now to verses 51 and 52, we uh, read the exciting climax of the sermon. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Let us pray once more together. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, we might be able to have some deeper insight into the deep fabric of the history into which you have woven the scarlet thread of our Lord Jesus at every point, and we pray that uh, you would open our eyes to that which Stephen now preaches, that we should not be a people dull of sight or hard of heart, but that we might have our ears open to hear all that you have declared to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon, the celebrated 19th century London preacher, once said that just as all the roads in England go to London, so all uh, the whole Bible, all the roads there lead to Christ. Uh, So some people over the years might have not made the best use of those roads, perhaps gotten lost on some of its turns or twists or taken shortcuts they shouldn't have on the way to Christ. Nevertheless, I believe...
that Spurgeon was exactly right, that every part of the Bible is significantly related to Jesus Christ in one way or the other as the Lord and Savior of the world, the meaning of human life itself, the secret of it, the hope for it are all found in him. Jesus is, after all, the Lord God incarnate. His appearance in the world as a man is the hinge around which the whole history of the human race turns. The destiny of every man is determined by his relationship to Christ or the lack of it. And no wonder then that from beginning to end in the Bible, we are uh, alerted to the hope of the world Uh, beginning in strange and dark terms of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, but then more and more coming to light, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, and so forth. No wonder that all through the Old Testament there is this building anticipation of this great figure, an eternal king of the seed of David, a prophet like unto Moses, a priest of the order of Melchizedek, and so forth. Naturally, God wanted the whole world to understand very well the meaning and the significance of the coming of his son. And so he made considerable preparation to build a context and a frame. The whole Bible teaches in various ways that Jesus of Nazareth is the hope of all the earth and the turning point of history. It teaches this in many ways. Jesus patiently preaches and explains these things to his disciples in the crowds. Or Paul writes magnificently of these mysteries in his letters, unfolding them to our delight. God's people sang these very songs that we have sung this evening of their Messiah over a thousand years before he appeared. The prophets foretold the coming of his redemption in a variety of ways and times. But God has not limited himself to explanations. God has also given countless demonstrations of this great plan of redemption and who this Messiah would be. God, for a millennium, appointed certain sacrifices and ceremonies and institutions of worship, which would teach the people of Christ and their need for him and the atonement that he brings, God appointed among men prophets and priests and kings to teach them that these are the things that the people really need if only they could get a good one that would stick around. And in all these great events, we can clearly see various illustrations and explanations and anticipations of the Savior, the sacrificial worship, the events both joyful and terrible in the history of the people of God, her heroes, their exploits, These are all so many signposts on the road to Christ. Of course, the Hebrew scriptures have always had a multitude of uses, so don't get me wrong. We love them for a multitude of reasons, but I judge the greatest and noblest work of the whole Bible is to lead us to and to to trust more firmly in and to teach us to love more deeply our Redeemer, Jesus Christ and the God who has sent him. No wonder then the meaning of Christ's life and work and death is woven into the very fabric deep in human history. No wonder that God provided so many things by which the people of God might learn of this Messiah, might form habits of thought, habits of thought 
to support their understanding of his life and work when he at last was revealed to the world. Now I say this uh, time of year when various songs and cards and so forth are all reminding us of various biblical prophecies of the coming of Messiah, rightly, we must not make the mistake of thinking that God only anticipated the coming of the Savior by sprinkling these predictions throughout the Old Testament. Oh no! And if you are reading Moses and the prophets and the Psalms page after page, and you say, I I don't see any connection to Jesus here, well, I do have a sermon for you. Many more sermons could be preached, but I hope this will help you see a big chunk of the Bible that you've never, in a way that you've never seen it, if you've never thought of these things. Now, for some time, I've wanted to teach you something about what, for a thousand years, has been called typology. Typology, which someone said, is God's fingerprint on history. The impression that God himself has left of his signature in what he is doing in the world. God's fingerprint on history. It's a kind of teaching and a kind of prophecy, not in words, but in flesh and blood, in events, uh, persons, even sometimes places and things. Typology is not an oracle or a dream or a vision of the future, but somehow the future itself displayed in historical events so that when you read something, it's like, whoa, deja vu. Joseph is one example of such typology, as I'll explain in a minute. But since God is the sovereign ruler of history, he has filled all of history with lessons to teach us about the Savior. So, as I say, children, what Tolkien did for us in Middle Earth, uh, not only with those three large figures I mentioned, but actually in a great many figures in the story, and what uh, Lewis did in Narnia with Aslan, uh, God actually did in our world weaving themes and events and even names into the record of our history, writing certain longings and dreams deep in our hearts, which are reflected in so many wonderful ways. Now, I I, I think I I can't go very long on this theoretical explanation because I've probably already lost many of you. So I want to start with an example, one that I have given you before. I've chosen Joseph to start us off. Um, In the last two years, our Wednesday Bible study covered the life of Joseph, and it also covered the first half of the book of Acts, which looked back on Joseph. <coughs> it was a, uh, at that time I made a couple paragraphs in relation to this, but I thought, well, maybe I'll build on some knowledge and I'll be able to open this up some more, and maybe you'll get more of a sense that when you're reading the Bible, you, you should be having some deja vu all over again, as uh, that famous catcher once said. Okay, uh, what does Joseph have to do with Jesus? Why is Stephen preaching this long, seemingly tedious history and then turning the corner so sharply and assailing the Sanhedrin for never understanding what God has done? One writer gives the big picture this way. Derek Kidner, he writes, What Joseph was to the men of his day, 
This and much more Jesus would be to the world. Yeah, general formula for typology. What Joseph was to the men of his day, this and much more Jesus would be to the world. In this, Joseph, this despised and rejected son, God not only recovered the sons of Abraham to himself, but also provided a means of salvation to the nations. And all these events were certainly no accident, but I must begin at the beginning, and so let's do so. Let's think of this little boy, Joseph, and his coat of many colors, right? And the, the, the spectacular dreams that he had from his youth. Joseph was a prophet, and by dreams and visions, he revealed the future to the sons of Israel. This was, in fact, one reason that he was hated so much, because he was bringing them the word of the Lord. These dreams revealed that, G that Joseph was actually destined to rule over his brethren and the tribes uh, as they were at that time. Already you can see many interesting parallels in a rejected prophet who was destined both to deliver his people and to rule over them, but as you know, that's just the beginning of things. That beloved son was sent by his father to his brothers, but they plotted to kill him out of envy, Stephen points out. Just as you know, Jesus himself was delivered to death out of envy, we read. Well, Joseph's brothers sought to get rid of him so that this man would not reign over them. But through their actions, or despite them in so many ways, but fulfilling uh, God's plan, Joseph is actually made both their Savior and their Lord. As uh, Peter put it a few chapters uh, before in Acts, God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Like, you know, you tried to get rid of him. God has highly exalted him. The same exact thing happened in Joseph's case. Joseph is given all authority. Uh, he is uh, set at the right hand of Pharaoh, the ruler of all. Joseph experiences this very familiar pattern that we find in the Bible of suffering and glory, of humiliation and exaltation. Joseph was made like Jesus in his humiliation. Both of them hated by their brethren. Both sold for the price of a slave. Both became bondservants, as a matter of fact. Both were accused falsely of the basest crimes and convicted. Indeed, both punished with two other prisoners, one of whom was saved and the other of which was lost. Uh, many more parallels could be mentioned. I'm just skimming the surface here. Um, here is their humiliation as suffering servants of the Lord. Uh, was Joseph aware of, of all this when he was living it out? Probably not. At least we're not, we're not given any indication in the Bible that I can find that he understood the significance of these events. He just got a raw deal as far as he knew. He was just uh, in the dark, suffering. But he was, in fact, sharing in Christ's sufferings at every point. Yeah, God didn't exp explain this to him, it seems, um, the sufferings probably were just seemingly random enough to him while he was sitting for years in a dark dungeon. But uh, this is how the theme of suffering and glory took shape in Joseph's life as it takes shape in various ways throughout the Bible, as it takes shape in your life in a variety of ways as well. We all share in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul points out, joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in some way in order that we also may be glorified together. This typology is, this thumbprint of God is put on every believer 
in a variety of ways. But, but it's remarkable just how similar Joseph's sufferings were in so many different ways. Um, to this suffering, Peter writes, you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. This is our calling too, and we must take the form of bondservants. We must bear his name and bear his reproach. We must suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified together. Joseph experienced that in a very Christ-like way, but so do we in our own way. Um, But back to the story. Joseph, who so suffered, was then highly exalted, raised in a single hour to the right hand of Pharaoh Most High, so that every knee literally should bow before him. A breck, they said, bow the knee as uh, he rode around the, the streets. Joseph became lord of all the land of Egypt, was entrusted with the power of the king to rule, and was honored by all the people as their savior from destruction. You have saved our lives, they praise him. Um, Then when his brothers were revealed, as we read, he he forgave those who sinned against him. And uh, by his wise intercession, he restored his brothers to some sense of spirituality and the chosen people, uh, again, are reunited. Um, He became the means of raising up his brethren and saving the nations. Many more parallels might be mentioned in his exaltation. This will suffice for now to see that God had shaped Joseph's life to teach about Christ's suffering and glory. The point that uh, Stephen makes when he brings him up is that uh, Remember when you rejected that one who was your savior? You always do that. You never recognize what God is doing. Can't you learn some of the lessons from God's history? Okay. So long as Christians have been reading the Bible, Joseph has been regarded as a type of Christ, a prefiguring of the savior, a prophecy, if you like, in flesh and blood, a type. It's not hard to see why. In fact, if you'd like to know more on this theme, Arthur Pink in his nice... Uh, explanation of the life of Joseph in his commentary on Genesis has no less than 101 parallels between Joseph and Christ. And perhaps it's a little overdone, but it is astonishing to see God's fingerprints on Joseph's history. So Stephen, as I say, preaches this to remind the Jewish rulers um, of what God had in store for Joseph and how his brethren reacted, right? Um, This one whom they hated and sold for the price of a slave. This was the one whom God had appointed to save their very lives. And not only them, but all nations had to come to God's chosen deliverer. And in the world of Joseph's day, darkened by famine and death, there was but one hope, one source of life. And even Pharaoh himself, he told the people, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph if you want to live. And it was such an unlikely story in Joseph's day. I mean, who would have thought that the life of Grand Egypt and the surrounding nations, that their very life and existence hinged on a condemned Hebrew slave in the darkness of prison? (laughs) Those people had no idea that a famine was coming. And when it came, they certainly had no idea that a Hebrew slave had the power to deliver them from death. Vaunted Egypt? 
depending on some condemned Hebrew bondservant? The thought was ridiculous. And I suppose it's just as ridiculous to many people today in the case of a greater Savior, Jesus, that their lives, their lives depend upon somebody who was made a bondservant, this Jewish nobody. But then comes the famine in a variety of ways. Misery, despair, hopelessness, the shadow of death. And in all the midst and luxury and prosperity of our busy Egypt today, people still are finding themselves suffering and liable to death. And they ask, what do we need? And what do people need today? There is nothing else. There is no one else that they need more than a despised and rejected and forgotten Hebrew slave. There's but one man whom the world must go to. One man who can save them from death. That man is Jesus. And so, without going into all the details, what Joseph was to the men of his day, this and much more Jesus would be to the world. Today, people are no more likely to turn to Christ than Pharaoh was to go looking in his prisons for a Hebrew slave to answer his fears and secure his future. It's always been very, very hard for people to humble themselves and accept such a despised means to be their only hope. And yet, as Stephen points out, it is the only hope, and it's been proven to time and time in history. In fact, I just picked out one. Stephen gives a whole list of people who typified Christ in various ways. Um, Back to our text for a moment. I've not forgotten about it, but uh, verse 26, um, a little after where we read, uh, the the same thing is true about Moses. Or is it uh, 2025 here? Um, Let's see. Uh, well, back in 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he, that is Moses, defended and avenged him, who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Here it is, 25. For he supposed, Moses supposed, that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Whoa, deja vu all over again, right? You'd think that the brethren would have understood This was God's deliverer. They did not. Uh, Verse 36, same chapter here, verse 36. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer. Okay? Deja vu? You get it? How hard it is for people to humble themselves and receive God's despised means of salvation. But this humbling is most necessary because our great problem is pride. And what rebellious, prideful humanity needs is to humble themselves and there find in that position of humility the Lord himself. And God kept sending to the, Lord, to the world one unlikely deliverer after another that we might learn the truth about ourselves and our need for salvation. And in what way is such a prophecy fulfilled? Not in some simple prediction but in, the, the, uh, uh, in, in, in this life itself, the life of Moses. Okay. We are proud rebels, and so the first need we have is to pour contempt on our pride, humble ourselves, 
and become the joyful recipients of salvation. Okay, so this is Stephen's great point in his speech before the Sanhedrin, urging the Jewish rulers to repent of their murder of the Son of God and to show them their error. He preaches typology from Moses through the Psalms and the prophets. He preaches to them typology. He points out how again and again God has prepared them to receive their king. God has taken them down this path time and time again. And God's people have kept on despising and rejecting God's appointed means. Which of them did, he, did you not crucify or kill? Can you not learn from the errors of the past? He came to his own, and his own received him not, just like Joseph, just like Moses, just like David, just like the prophets, all of whom were types of Christ. We mentioned some weeks ago, here's David, right? Uh, rejected by the reigning king and the people of Israel, running around for years with a band of Gentiles, and, and this was the hope of the nation. Well, here he is again. All things are made by him and for him, Scripture says. This one that is the center of human history, the hinge around which the human race turns, the destiny of every individual is all tied up in him. No wonder that from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the prophets, there is a revelation of him in quite a variety of ways. Okay, so th there's my extended example building on some things from our Bible study. I hope that's helpful to you. Let me explain a little more about the theory behind it now. Um, typology is not just a matter of the history of various deliverers of, deliverers of Israel, though that's where Stephen uh, takes his text. This typology is found in rituals and ceremonies, sacrifices and the Passover lamb, institutions in the nation, the judge, the prophet, the priest, the king, redemptive events such as the exodus, the wilderness, the conquest of Canaan, innumerous deta innumerable details which all in their own way pointed to and proclaimed the ultimate truth of salvation which would unfold in the ministry of the Messiah. When in the book of Hebrews, for example, we read how all these things in the sacrificial system, the priests and the parts of the temple that were constructed were, were all to be a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, his words. That word copy is in the Greek tupos, from which our English word type is derived. It's actually a biblical word a word that Paul uses in Romans 5, verse 14, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He was prefiguring it. Uh, or we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, of Israel in the wilderness, which was an example to us. Example there is once again type. The, the concept of typology is based very squarely on New Testament statements. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, same thing. These things are written down as a type. Uh, the Christian concept of typology that teaches us of Jesus and of our relationship to him, of his salvation and how it's to be received, this is left everywhere throughout the Bible. Uh, 
By the way, the original word uh, tupos um, usually meant just a mark or an impression left by an object pressed down into some substance, a, a seal, a mark, uh, or if you like, a, a thumbprint, right? God's thumbprint in history. So it's, it's a good visual as well. Shot through the Hebrew Bible are so many marks, impressions, types, enacted prophecies, living anticipations, exemplary patterns, all important in their own right at the time, but also all preparing us to understand the one to come. All these things were written as types for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come, wrote Paul. Now, I admit that typological interpretation of the Bible is no simple matter. And I know that some have overdone it, especially in the medieval period. Some schools found types and types again where there probably were none to be found where they were looking anyway. Many today, no doubt, have committed the opposite error so that we hear almost nothing about typology today, or when we do, it seems extremely fanciful. We, we need to take the middle road and embrace this way of interpreting the scriptures. So, for example, when Matthew quotes a prophecy of Hosea, written so many years before, um, Hosea wrote, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Um, Matthew takes up that quotation from Hosea and applies it to Jesus, who had to flee to Egypt, you remember, and then returned from Egypt to Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. Um, well, the whole passage here, Matthew chapter 2, Joseph, we read, took the young child and his mother Mary by the night and departed for Egypt and was there till the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so in what way was that prophecy fulfilled? This was originally clearly not a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, not in any simple, facile way, as many other prophecies, indeed, uh, are much more direct. No, no, no. Uh, there was something much bigger going on behind the scenes, which Matthew continues to bring up, not just here, but he brings it up again and again and again, that the whole life of Christ was following the pattern or type of Israel. That Christ is going to so recapitulate, fulfill the life of Israel, but righteously at every point, that he's going to be so identified as to be able to serve as a substitute. So, sorry, I warned you, it'd be a little complicated. Just as Israel was the Son of God... Many scriptures remind us of that. Jesus is the Son of God. Just as Pharaoh, a cruel king, had to destroy, uh, tried to destroy uh, the Son of God, uh, uh, Israel, so Herod, another cruel king, sought to destroy the Son of God, namely Jesus. Just as God protected his beloved people, his son in the first case, so he protected his son in the second. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the crossing, uh, the, the, the baptism in the Jordan, uh, which happens next, uh, the same thing that happened to God's people. Messiah recapitulates the history of God's people. And this whole historical pattern, this great reduplication of history, 
is more than a simple prophetic uh, fulfillment. It's more than just even demonstrating that the birth of Jesus is in Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is being so finally and fully identified with Israel as to become Israel itself, a new Israel. His history is the history of God's people as it should be. His temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, paralleling Israel's for 40 years, was successful, and he defeated the devil. And to fulfill all righteousness, on and on he went. Uh, Even the exile to Egypt, in all these things, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. And this is extremely important for Matthew's original readership to explain just who this Jesus is and what he has come to do. He has come so completely to identify with his people that he will be their substitute. He will be the true Israel into which they must also find themselves uh, coming. As Israel suffered in Egypt from a cruel king, Jesus would suffer from another cruel king, suffer exile, and so much more. He was not only going to identify himself with them, he was going to suffer with them, suffer in this world, so as to become a faithful high priest who could sympathize with them in their infirmities. Even more than this, he was going to suffer their fate as sinners. Take upon himself the judgment of God, which they deserved because of their rebellion. He would be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, and they would be released in his place. All of this foreshadowing in Jesus, who the Savior would be. Well, much more I could say. I simply invite you now to open the, open the Bible and to read with new eyes and to be ready to think time and time again, hmm, interesting, deja vu. And you could read Tolkien the same way. For Tolkien, the master novelist is also doing the very same thing in the people, in the events Uh, in the activities of his novel. Well, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, I introduce to you the idea of typology. And I have to introduce it to you, even though that from the time, literally, of the apostles until the advent of liberal theology, this was a major interpretive school to the Hebrew scriptures. But in the modern era, this has been lost. Uh, frankly, liberal theology doesn't believe that God rules history, and they don't even believe that the Bible foretells the future in any way. The result is that for the last several generations, a typological reading of redemptive history has become neglected, if not actually forgotten. It doesn't, uh, doesn't show up in commentaries and books very much like it used to. People feel a little sheepish bringing it up, uh, knowing all these criticisms out there from the liberal quarter. Well, I tell you, we are not able fully to appreciate Christ as we must, or understand who he is and what he has done without a God-given historical context, which is largely done through typology. It's through this whole conceptual framework of history that God has supremely taught us to understand his atonement, his intercession, the nature of his kingdom, and so forth. God has woven the truth of his Son into the fabric of thousands of years of the history of salvation so that we might know him better.
The history of the world centers around this man. The meaning of your human life turns on its relationship to him. And all of history testifies to it. In our own lives, as I mentioned, Christ continues to write this great story for the world to read and to know him better. We too take up the cross and follow him. We too must take the form of bondservants and have the mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. We also must bear his name and his word and suffer his reproach. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. If they kept his word, they'll keep ours. We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified together. You, brother and sister, are also in that sense a kind of type of Christ. God's thumbprint on your history that points to Jesus. Every believer receives such treatment. On the pages of your life, your sufferings at the present time even, God is writing his story for the world to read. And just as Joseph in a single hour was raised to glory, so all will be raised to glory in Jesus. Christ's life, death, resurrection, is the mold into which God is pressing our lives now. So let us embrace it and follow him. And when we read in the Psalms things that seem strangely familiar to us in our lives, and again we wonder, is this the suffering of David? Or is this the suffering of Christ? Or is this written for me? You have to understand, it's all of a piece. The Lord means to remake you, to conform you to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And you will know him so much better as you go through your history. For it's impossible to love Jesus Christ and to serve Jesus Christ without being more and more reshaped into the image of Jesus Christ and sharing his humiliation as you will one day share his exaltation. Taking up the cross as you will one day take from him a crown. This is our story as well. And there will come a day when the Lord of glory raises his nail-scarred hands to welcome all of his brethren, all of his suffering servants, from Jacob and Joseph and Moses to David and the prophets, to you and to me, and to say, my people, my brethren. And in a single hour, we will go from humiliation to exaltation, to suffering to glory, and we who knew his sufferings will receive a throne we who share his scars will wear his crown and we will be with him forever and all history will have been fulfilled in Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, such grand thoughts uh, seem too great sometimes even to be believed and yet on page after page of history we see how beautifully, beautifully and intricately you have revealed Jesus to us we pray that you would now continue your work, revealing him in us and through us.
that we too, in our own way, may take our place in the salvation of the world, even as Joseph, your servant, was for a time given humiliation that he might then become a life-giving Savior. So we pray that we too might be for the light and the salvation of the world, that you would bless our work for Christ's sake and in his name, that we would continue in all time.